Welcome to Life After Service. This is the audio-only version of this month's episode. You can watch now the original video documentary on YouTube, youtube.com slash podcast. Find out more on our website. All details in the episode description. This documentary episode features Tony Park. I'm just lucky, you know. So when I hear the stories of veterans who are struggling, even today, of people who've attempted suicide and those whose lives have been lost, unfortunately, I can see how it's happened and how real the problem is. Australians sign up and put their lives on the line to do their part to protect the nation and its interests. But when the day comes to hang up their uniform for the last time, it's the end of one chapter and the beginning of the next. In this series, we talk to some of our veterans about their life after service. Tony Park served in the Australian Army Reserves for 34 years. He had a six-month deployment to Afghanistan in 2002, where he worked alongside the Special Air Service Regiment as a public affairs officer. In Season 4 of Life on the Line podcast, he told Alex Lloyd about the highlights of his time in Afghanistan, his transition home, and how he saw the military's relationship with the media and the public change over the course of his career. Today, Tony is an international best-selling author. He and his wife, Nicola, usually spend half of each year in their house in Africa and half in Sydney. He caught up with Alex at Hornsby RSL in Sydney to talk more about his life after his military service. So, Tony, we want to have a chat today about your life after service and how you went with that transition as we're exploring with a few veterans. But before we get to your life post-military, in our Life on the Line podcast, we missed a particular Afghanistan story. Can you tell me the story behind this photo, Bin Laden's balls? Yeah, that is probably my crowning achievement. Bin Laden's balls <laughs> your crowning achievement. Yeah, our officer. Um, it, it, it was significant to me in a, in a number of ways because I was there as a public affairs officer. Most of my work, well, 99.9% of my work was desk bound. I wasn't in the field. I was sort of relaying information about what our trips were doing back to Canberra and relaying news from Australia back to our troops and, and trying to keep an eye on the, on the bigger picture thing. But uh, I got to go out into the field on a mission with, to link up with an SAS patrol, which was out there in the field uh, doing a bit of humanitarian affairs mission where they were going to destroy an old Russian aircraft bomb, which had been there since the, um, the late 1980s or mm. early 1990s, and it was posing a threat to the village. So we took an EOD explosive ordnance disposal team out with us to blow up this bomb and render this village safe from this threat. But the, um, the other facet of the mission was a direct order from the commanding officer of the Special Operations Task Group, which was, bring me the balls of Bin Laden. So our patrols and a couple of the American patrols had picked up that uh, infiltrating across the border from Pakistan were not only advisors and arms and ammunition, but uh, candy, uh, this particular... Um, what kind of candy? Sweetened balls, which were called Osama bin Laden Kufa balls. And they were produced in, um, in Pakistan, and they had a very fetching picture of Osama bin Laden giving one of his famous speeches, uh, speeches with a few jets in the background. And it was a brilliant piece of, of enemy propaganda to just sort of keep that message bubbling out there amongst the tribal villages in the border country where this was between Pakistan and Afghanistan that Osama is A-OK and he's on our side and here, have some balls for your kids, you know. So, um, so we knew these things were around and uh, the patrols had sent back photos of them. So we thought we have to get a packet of these balls. In fact, we had two packets that the patrols had sourced. And so my commander said to me, bring me the balls of Bin Laden. So we went out there and did a filming job where we watched the big bomb being destroyed and the village rendered safe. And then I had to, to pick up the balls of Bin Laden and then bring them back so that my commanding officer could present them in a ceremony 
to uh, the commanding general of the American Task Force at Bagram Air Force Base. And with much pomp and ceremony in front of the packed uh, Divisional uh, Tactical Operations Centre, the Australian Commander of the Special Operations Task Group handed over Osama bin Laden's balls to the American commanding general. Of course, it went down a tree. <laughs> I heard that packet of Osama, that packet of Osama bin Laden Kufa balls was last spotted in the SAS Regimental Museum in Perth. It might have been superseded since then, but that was back in 2003. Did you get a chance to taste bin Laden's balls before the SAS took possession? Or <laughs> Fortunately <did> not. <laughs> Fortunately not, yeah. But it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a, the serious side was that it was right near the end of my tour. It was getting into sort of November, starting at 2002. Uh, 2002, uh, in that first rotation that had begun with the Twin Towers, just after the Twin Towers bombing when the first troops had gone in. Uh, in late 2001, and I was there from July 2002 to December 2002. And for me, it was professionally rewarding because it, it had taken a while, one, to get the special operations community used to the idea that they could have a PR officer and perhaps engage with the media. Um, that, I might say, was not coming from the people on the ground who, who, who knew they had to be able to engage with the media and deal with them. And it took a while, but after a few months, I think they felt comfortable enough to send me out into the field, um, although the threat environment was quite low at the, at the time. Indeed, the war was just about over in Afghanistan at that time. So it was, a, it was an interesting bit of humanitarian aid. Uh, the troops by that stage were, were you know, gathering intelligence while doing uh, things such as you know, distributing medical supplies and um, educational materials and collecting Osama bin Laden's balls in the process. Because as we said, 2002, we pretty much only deployed SAS at that time. So mm. I know there's a lot of famous shots that get used of SAS troops over there and all that's quite staged, but this was one of those very rare occasions you actually got to go out on a real patrol and get some real footage and real imagery from them doing their job. Yeah, it's funny. We had had Australian um, photographers and videographers from Australian Army come over. And, and yet early on in 2002, there was still this reticence to let them out into the, into the field. And uh, I think it was very significant because I took an American combat cameraman with me, a sergeant, and the footage that he shot from that patrol, it's sort of grainy, bouncy, jiggly footage, um, is, is actually the only uh, real life publicly released footage from that whole first deployment to wow. Afghanistan, video footage that is, mm. uh, that wasn't staged, that was actually taken on a real patrol. Not much happened, uh, but I think it's, it probably has some significance with that. Uh, I shot an interview with the squadron commander at the time, and uh, funnily enough, for until again, until much more started happening in Afghanistan later on, everything that was in the war memorial, for example, most of what was in the war memorial was the staged pictures and staged vision that came out of that first tour. But my friend was down at the war memorial a couple of years after he and I had both been back from Afghanistan with his kids and his son said, Daddy, I can hear your voice. And he went around the corner and there playing on a, on a TV monitor in the war memorial was this uh, interview that I had conducted with him mm. with his face pixelated in the field of the mission they were on. And again, that was significant because that's probably the only... Uh, it, it is the only example of an SAS commander in the field giving an interview during that first 12 months of the war. And during your time over there, I imagine you would have met a future commanding officer of the SAS, a young Ben Pronk. Yeah, Ben was a uh, captain at the time. I might have to correct me on that, but Ben was a captain at the time in Bagram and uh, one of the troop commanders and, and back then showed great promise. And uh, I, I think the fact that they entrusted him with looking after my little Australian Army camera crew to uh, not get themselves killed or trip over a landmine or anything uh, showed that he was probably destined for bigger things in the future. The good thing about working with Ben was, was that the, the true professional that he was is a lot of officers would have said, oh, I don't want to look after the camera crew and I don't want to look after some PR officer and you know, this kind of thing. But Ben could see that there was a need for us to be able to communicate our message. And, and I think, in fact, I know that the Australian Army camera crew and photographers that went over and spent a day with Ben and his guys driving around that part of Afghanistan got way more than they probably expected. Because I think he was a guy who impressed me at that stage where not only was obviously a very good operator in the field, we could see the big picture as well too, and that probably marked him you know, for, for bigger things in the future. So Tony, we're talking about life after service and that process of transition and 
what worked for you and so on. But your life after service, there's not such a clear cut where you're in military and then you're out and you're in a post career. So the what you've described as the peak of your military service is 2002, that Afghanistan deployment. But you get out some years later. But your next big professional leap, because you're a reservist, is fulfilling that childhood dream of yours of becoming an author. But that comes true for you while you're in Afghanistan in the form of a publishing deal. So I imagine it would have been very surreal juggling those two worlds of all-consuming military deployment, peak of your professional service, yet you've also got this next dream on your doorstep when you come home. Yeah, you're right. It was a very pivotal year for me, 2002, because I've gone, I've kind of done the ultimate, certainly was the ultimate for me in terms of my military career of deploying to Afghanistan. And just before I left, I had sent uh, the manuscript for my for what turned out to be my first novel to a publisher at Pan Macmillan. And uh, I had actually sent it some time before and it hadn't been accepted, but it had kind of been sent back to me with a please try again note on it and we'll have another look at it. It's very generous and unusual in publishing. <laughs> it was, it was. And, and my publisher, of course, made a big point of telling me how generous and unusual <laughs> she was being and said, have another go at it, send it to us. And I did. And, and in the in the rush of deploying, because kind of in true military style, things didn't exactly go according to plan. I think people perhaps who haven't been in the military have a fairly romanticized opinion of how organized things are in the military. But of course, things can get very disorganized. And I was on again, off again, on again to go to Afghanistan. And in this kind of chaos of trying to organize my personal life, I went off without touching base with the publisher. And then got an email from her uh, a month or two later saying, open this email, it's good news. And I did, and she said, we're gonna publish your book. And I sent her an email back saying, that's great, fantastic, it's my dream come true. By the way, I'm in Afghanistan. <laughs> and she didn't know where I was. Um, so it was, it was an incredibly fulfilling moment for me. I like to say I wasn't able to celebrate, I wasn't allowed to have a beer <laughs> even to celebrate. But it was a whole lot of things coming together. And uh, that, that time, I think, certainly turned my life around in terms of my civilian career. Because you said I was a reservist, I was coming in and out of the military. And when I got back from Afghanistan, uh, it was almost a bit confusing because here I was ready to launch on uh, pursuing, I had a chance to pursue the one thing in life I'd always wanted to do, which was to write novels. Mm. And as it turned out, because my first novel was set in Africa, my publisher said, you can write the novel set in Africa for us that they wanted. And I was already getting into a rhythm of spending six months in Australia and um, six months in Africa, where I would go away each year and write a novel. It was a bit of a conflict because I came out of Afghanistan on a high with the army. I, would, like, I mean, I was, it was, I was fatigued after the six months that I'd been there, but I had been shown a whole new side of the army. I'd never worked with special forces before, and they kind of created a job at Headquarters Special Operations in Sydney, as it was at the time, for a reserve PR officer. I couldn't really say no. Uh, I wanted to, to do more and I think capitalize on the experience that I've gained. And so on one hand, I wanted to devote all of my energy to writing novels. And on the other hand, I felt like, I haven't really thought about this much, but I think I felt I probably owed the army a bit more than what I had been giving them after Afghanistan. Uh, and then the opposite happened. I found coming back into the military system very anticlimactic. Um, a letdown in many in many ways professionally and uh, I, I, I didn't ride that high for very long and I stayed in the army until 2016 but after a couple of years of giving it a go and getting knocked down a couple of times by bureaucracy and politics and infighting and things I kind of drifted onto what they call the standby reserve list and the standby reserve list is where Army Reserve officers can go into a pool of officers, not attached to any particular unit, but you're just there in case someone needs something doing. And I, and I did a couple of things, I, I, interesting things. I, I did some media training for guys that, and girls that were going to Iraq. I did some media training for Mark Donaldson when he got his VC. So I would come in and out for little jobs. But I think I had fallen into this trap of thinking that just as all I ever wanted to do was be a novelist. I was pinning all my hopes on that. I didn't think I could leave the army. 
because it had been, it wasn't my full-time job, but it had been part of my life since I was 17. And I think I was, maybe I was scared to leave because I didn't want to be an ex-soldier or a former officer. I, I, it was part of my identity. It was a tribe you didn't want to let go of. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, I had mates, I had family there, I had a sense of belonging. And I think I'd also fallen into that trap of, of thinking it was one of the things that defined me. So it wasn't who I was as a person. In fact, I was defined by the fact, as it said in the biography for every one of my novels that kept coming out every year, Tony Park's also an officer in the Australian Army Reserve and served in Afghanistan. And it seemed to be part of who I was or it defined me. And I think that's a mistake. And, and I think I would probably have been in a better position, uh, I, I think, personally, in terms of my personal development and even my personal life and my mental health and various things if I had got out sooner. So it's kind of at odds with what a lot of people say. A lot of people's experience is that they're, particularly men and women with PTSD, a common complaint that I still hear today, and it's very real, is that the Defence Force is, is too keen to get rid of them. To, to give them a pension, recognise their condition, but just make them somebody else's problem. I think I was creating a lot of problems for myself just by hanging around hoping I'd get better, you know, hoping that the army would be more like what I hoped it would be, which was not fair on either of us. So I had a difficult transition and I got to the stage where I was doing nothing. So I wasn't benefiting the army, I wasn't benefiting me and I would get these shape up or ship out emails once a year saying, are you gonna do anything if not get out? And I couldn't, but eventually I said, I said yes. And then I got an email in 2016 that basically said, your request for separation has been approved. <laughs> that was That's it. it, thank you for your After service. 34 Goodbye. years, there was, I think, after 34 years. I think there was a thank you okay. at the end from the sergeant or the corporal that sent me the, um, the email. And so, that was it after 34 years. And then I felt adrift. <laughs> So was that an overstayed welcome or just a really long goodbye? I think probably a little bit of both, you know. I think it's a two-way a two -way thing. It's a corny thing, but it's also it's one of those things you only get out of it what you put into it. I think that's fair enough. However, I, I don't feel as though I, I, I wasn't expecting any favours after having come back from Afghanistan into what was for a while a peacetime army again. Because I don't know if people need to remember that the war was over at the end of 2002. Okay, they did go on to Iraq soon after. We didn't go back to Afghanistan until a couple of years mm. after that. Uh, and what I had done didn't really seem to have counted for much. And I wasn't expecting, you know, accolades or medals or anything like that. But I was hoping I could pass on some of the lessons I'd learned that seemed no one wanted to know. And I shouldn't say that, not no one. I mean, within my core, there were people who were interested. Uh, but yeah, I think also I had probably reached the peak of my military career. I wasn't after promotion, not at all. Um, so what was I doing? Marking time, I think. Yet, as I said, I, I think I had fallen into this trap of thinking that because I'm in the army, that's who I am and I have to stay. And, and that was where it all started to go wrong. So it's December 2020, we're talking now, so that's just over four years ago, you had this separation. Mm. How's your relationship with Army today? How do you feel about it now when you had a few years to process that? I, I, I feel better about my little bit that I did. For a long time, I, didn't, I also felt guilty that I was staying in and not doing anything else. I knew within myself that there was probably not much point in me putting up I am for another deployment because I didn't. I genuinely didn't think it would be worth me going. I, I totally uh, de undervalued what I had done and what was being done. Uh, so I don't think I don't think that was part of the problem. But um, I, I think looking back at it now, yeah, I I, I see some. I certainly I, I I feel better about my own service. I, I'm not overly happy about some things that are happening at the moment in the Defence Force, and I'm not even that happy about the direction, some of the directions in which the Defence Force has gone. I think also um, another reason I should have quit earlier was because I, I am the product of two armies, Alex. I, I, am, I am the product of the army that came out of the Vietnam War. 
I mean, because I joined all your I, training back then. All of yeah. my training back then was done by warrant officers. Certainly, every warrant officer who trained me had served in Vietnam, and a good number of the sergeants had as well. Mm. And we were training to fight the Vietnam War. Are you a jungle warfare style? We the jungle, no, no prep I went to Kanungru, I did jungle warfare training mm. and all this kind of stuff. And our uniforms and equipment all belonged to that era. And while I was in, we changed, and, and probably it was around about the time of Timor in, in 99. I had gone to the PR Corps, the Army's focus in those operations, and, and the ones before that had been much more about peacekeeping, and uh, they had been about uh, international engagement in a different way. And we were moving into a new era, you know, where it was not okay to have heavily subsidised alcohol and strippers at parties and all these sort of things that used to go on, and the world was changing and standards were changing. And I don't say there's anything wrong with any of that. Uh, but I, I, I kind of went from a 60s army into a 2000s army. And, and that was a big shift for me and for a lot of people. Our experience changed. Our, what we expected changed in the army. And uh, I still think the Defence Force is it's taking a long time to do it, but it's still going through a very long period of trying to work out exactly what its identity should be today. And its identity today, while the mission is fundamentally similar, is very different to what it was in 1982 even, let alone 1972 or 1962 or 1952. Speaking of identity, you talk about how you defined yourself as an Australian officer. It's a huge part of who you are. But what I think has made your overall transition into life after service more successful is the fact you had something else going on in your life. If the army was your only thing, you could be in a lot worse place than you are now because you were citing struggles and difficult emotions you're grappling with over a substantial number of years there. But at the same time as all that's going on, you've got this stuff to keep you grounded, to give yeah. you fulfillment, give you purpose, which I think is really important. And even this first book, it's about an Australian army veteran giving overland tours in Africa, trying to escape problems of a troubled past. Is that semi-autobiographical? Well, I think, you know, you write about what you know. That's always good advice <laughs> for first-time authors. I never saw combat, but I know plenty of people who did, and I had a lot of experience in the Army or on the edges of, of operations in the Army. So I could draw on that. I think your first point is really, really hits the nail on the head, is that I, I didn't have to worry about transitioning because I already had a job. But I, it's something we hear time and time again about the, the lack of support and lack of preparedness for people leaving the Defence Force, many of whom have had as much time as I have mm. in the full-time army, and not being supported or prepared for their time to leave. And I've seen so many examples of that. When I was uh, working as a, a public relations officer for one of the brigades in the late 1990s, I mean, I, I was with um, uh, my brigade major had served in Rwanda, and he was getting ready to leave the regular army. And he came to me and said, just have to ask you this question. So he, said, he said, headhunters, recruitment agents, do I have to pay them to find me a job? That was the level of preparedness that a major, you know, a field grade officer had back then. And, it, and, and in so many ways, it hasn't changed. Um, I think if you look at veterans affairs today, it's, it's still in the news. And, and, you know, I'm working on a book now, you know, where, where these issues have, have happened uh, during the Vietnam War and then all the operations since where there is this disconnect between the military and then the veterans community and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And people tell me now that people leaving the military now, they have a seminar from DVA, they are given a, a veterans white card which entitles them to free mental health care and free treatment for serious mental conditions such as cancer and, and, and other illnesses. Now, that's great. That's great. But that's only happened in the last year or two after our longest war ever is over. So when I uh, finished in Afghanistan and left the army, I, I had no knowledge at all about what entitlements, if any, were, were open to me. Nothing. A absolutely nothing. I'm not an ignorant person and I'm not, you know, non-media savvy, nor am I unfamiliar with the ways of government. You just uh, weren't given the information or the training to become a civilian again. If I'd been given a pamphlet, something like that, uh, I had a, I had a senior officer, a lieutenant colonel, say to me when I went to Afghanistan, he said, "You'll be right, mate. You'll get the gold card. 
because you've been to Afghanistan. Free healthcare, free public transport, and all these other benefits, and a pension. And I thought, this can't be right. And it wasn't. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't right. You know, the gold card is for someone who's totally and permanently incapacitated, uh, has other service-related conditions. So I rang up, and I, I rang the Department of Veterans Affairs, and I, I remember being on a beach, fortunately, because I was on hold for an hour and a half. When I got through, I said, what's the story with the gold card? And this person very helpfully said, you'll get one of those when you're 75. <laughs> I said, okay, that's good. Thank you, goodbye. There was no mention of the white card. There was no mention of employment support. There was no mention of transition support. Now, all these things are there. But I got the feeling it was because they didn't want to make it any easier than they had to, to let people know what was going on. I don't say that out of you know criticism so much. I think it's probably more... a. a a fundamental disconnect between the ADF and Department of Veterans Affairs. A friend of mine who worked at DVA, I didn't know this, but she told me that they have no database of who, they don't know who a veteran is. They don't know who has served because Defence doesn't share that information. Why not? You know? So for me, yes, I had a, I had a job. Uh, it's turned out to be a promising good job for me because I'm still writing books, uh, which makes me feel lucky. But I think really, is, am I, I'm just lucky. You know, so when I hear the stories of veterans who are struggling, even today, of people who've attempted suicide and those whose lives have been lost, unfortunately, I can see how it's happened and, and how real the problem is. And it saddens me to think that we're still having inquiries, talking about royal commissions, perhaps when we could be spending money right now to address things that quite frankly should have been addressed 15 years ago when people like me started coming back or when people started coming back from Timor or when people started coming back from Somalia or Rwanda. I do want to come to your specific story, some more stuff about your writing career in Africa and all that, but before we come back to you specifically, you cite some real big picture, systemic level issues there, but if these things have been, and you're right, they have been talked about so long, Veterans Affairs is not a new conversation or talking point this year or since Afghanistan, Operation Slipper finished up. Why are we having the same conversation over and over again, do you think? Look, as someone who's worked in government as well as been in the military, my gut feeling is it comes down to the two most common issues in government in Australia. And they are money and turf. It makes no sense to me. These are things that are you know, problems at every level, every level of government. Where there is money, people have to jealously hang on to it and guard it. And when there is turf, it has to be defended at all costs. And it doesn't matter if people fall through the cracks between those two organisations. They're just collateral damage. And that sounds like, look, you, you, you sound like conspiracy theorist or a, a whinge or a scaremonger. But... You know, when, when someone like me, who, who has no real service-related problems, I've had a bit of counselling for things that have been partially related to my uh, service, and do I need a pension or government funding to address those? No. Was I entitled to it? Yes. The, the simple fact was. But nobody went out of their way to tell me. So do you put the onus of getting help onto someone? I, I, the, the other analogy that I, I think is come home to me recently, is if, if a corporation like BHP, uh, one of the mining, big mining companies or construction companies, uh, could have a situation where workers were being physically or mentally affected by their work, and, and yet there was no recourse or, or no duty of care being shown, people would be, would be pretty justifiably outraged about it. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's that's probably I think what what hurts me most most about it, the fact that all of this is avoidable, and I suspect it's about money. I, look, I mean that that does sound a bit harsh and conspiracy theorist driven that they don't want to let people know what they're entitled to because it will cost them too much. <laughs> I see that in many arms of government all the time, and the turf war is: can anyone give me a reason why if you sign the Pledge of Allegiance, take the Oath of Allegiance to the Australian Defence Force, that you would have any objection to the Department of Veterans Affairs sending you a letter when you get out saying this is what you... Hello, welcome to civilian life and this is what you're entitled to. I don't see what the disconnect is. I've never been able to see what the disconnect is. 
you describe some pain there, but I imagine something that was a balm, something that was soothing, that helped was escapism when you're creating your own worlds to escape to as well. Tell me first, how did your relationship with Africa start? Like what first drew you to the continent and when did you start to live there half the year? Well, my wife drew me to the continent. In 1995, she said, we're going on a safari holiday. And I thought, oh, well, fair enough, whatever. You know, another tick in the box because we'd done a fair bit of travel. Uh, but the continent took hold, and, and I don't know whether it was the wildlife or the landscapes or the people, but I think as someone who at that point in my life was starting to hatch a plan to get serious about writing, it had all the ingredients. This was a part of the world that on one level was similar to Australia in the landscapes of the outback and far north of northern parts of Australia. Um, there was this affinity with the land and a love of the outdoors, but... You throw in a bit of civil war and some lion attacks and elephant charges and, and, and crime and corruption and poaching, and it seemed to have all the ingredients for a story. And so we, my wife and I, became hooked on the continent, principally initially through the wildlife, but I think as someone who worked as a journalist and wanted to be a storyteller, everybody had a story. And I felt I needed to start writing these stories. And so I wrote this novel set in Africa which was my second attempt at writing after my first one failed. And, and it got published. And, and it seemed to me that I found this niche. And I had found it before I went away with the army to Afghanistan. And so I think even going away on deployment, while that was so important to me, it also made me realise that one of the things I was missing was Africa and writing and, and the ability to just immerse myself in another world, as you say. And it was a bit of escapism for me as well. Yet I could draw on some of the experience I'd, I'd had in life and uh, it was interesting, I, I did a, a seminar for the military art program, which is run by the wife of a friend of mine that I served in Afghanistan with over in WA. And I did a, uh, a veterans writing course in Perth a couple of years ago. And I found there were a number of veterans who, who felt that writing about their experiences was something that they wanted to do, that they thought could probably help them. Uh, and yet also a way of, of trying to perhaps shine a light on some of the issues they were facing as well too. And so I think as I've kind of had more time to reflect as I've got older, the books are still action-oriented thrillers, but there's a few more underlying issues in there. I mean, some of my characters have moved from being, you know, kind of action heroes to heroes with a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, or addictions or other problems that have perhaps been linked to their service. So I think you kind of, as a writer, hopefully you develop a little bit and hopefully your characters do a little bit as well too. Because the property you and your wife, Nicola, own, you're on the edge of the Kruger National Park. So you're on the edge of a war zone in a sense in terms of the war on poaching, which is not to be underestimated in the gunfire, the number of casualties involved in that and that big operation that it is. So you're in a real heightened environment there I imagine that actually gives quite a lot of energy to thriller writing as well as just chockers full of inspiration for beautiful landscapes and you've got a different animal to focus on or in your 2020 novel, Cycads and Last Survivor. So you've got that energy there from naturally coming from the land, but also you've just come from a heightened environment of Afghanistan, say, and then you're taking yourself back to Africa. Now, I'm not trying to directly compare the two, but you must be getting a kind of another dose of adrenaline buzz to fuel you and keep you going yeah well i think one thing i can never claim as a writer is writer's block <laughs> where i live in africa there's always something happening and as you say a large part of that is this war that's being fought to protect wildlife and the natural environment as you mentioned things like plants are under threat as well as rhinos principally being the big thing near where we live in the kruger park and and if you just look at the the rhino problem uh, that is armed poachers uh, from within South Africa and outside her borders coming into the big national parks to try and kill rhinos to, for their horns to be marketed in other parts of the world as status symbols and ostensibly for traditional medicine. But it's a full-on shooting war that involves uh, the military, the National Parks Corps, private security operators, military veterans, high-tech, uh, military working dogs, just about anything that you can think of that's employed in a modern war short of artillery is, is being employed in that war against poaching. I went to an interesting presentation, a fundraiser for working dogs, sniffer dogs in uh, the Kruger Park um, uh, a few months ago when I was still in Africa. And the ranger in charge of the dog section 
put up a statistic that there were more contacts, more firefights, and uh, more loss of life uh, in the war on poaching in the Kruger Park per year than there had been at the height of their conflict in southwest Africa and now Namibia when the South African Defence Force was fighting nationalist and communist insurgents in that country. So this is a war on par with many other uh, conflicts around the world at the moment. So yeah, it provides inspiration, I think, and that's a two-edged word, so it provides material mm. stuff. But it also, I, I, I'm a sucker for a happy ending. So I, I, I see cause to celebrate some of those efforts because uh, while the future of many endangered species is, is not good, it would be far worse if there weren't good men and women literally putting their lives on the line. No, no pun intended, but they do. They, they go out every day because where I live in South Africa, conservation is not writing an email to your member of parliament or chaining yourself to a tree. And they're both good things to do, but it is picking up an R1, an old SLR, um, or an LM5, a 5.56 millimeter semi-automatic weapon, and going into the bush, knowing that the person who's up there against you is carrying an AK-47. And that is what conservation means in the part of Africa where I live. So I can't help but be inspired, and, and I can't help but want to tell those stories, particularly for things like um, tracker dogs. I, I did a, a non-fiction book I've re-released called War Dogs about tracker dogs in Afghanistan. And so IED dogs, but these dogs are being used and they're becoming a game changer in that war in Africa, in my little corner of Africa, they're having a huge impact. So there's a lot of parallels between the service life. Um, I don't think my wife and I are adrenaline junkies, but it is fair to say that we do hear the chopper overhead <laughs> most full moon nights, which is when the poachers are active and occasionally we hear, hear a gunshot, but we don't feel unsafe. Um, and one of the reasons is because we know we are on the winning side as well too. And we know there's a lot of good work being done out there. And we know that, you know, this is, this is despite, um, I don't want to talk it up, it's not something that impinges on tourism or tourists. But even if we step away from the war on poaching angle, say you're having a quiet day or a weekend or a week there, you're still going to have that material, that inspiration, that energy coming from the big cat that's walking through your backyard at night or taking visiting friends on safaris and stuff like that. So it must be even the downtime is just something that is a dream holiday for many people like me. Yeah, look, it's fantastic. I mean, we live with nature and we, we live on a small reserve on the edge of the edge of the Kruger Park. And we have wild animals that move through our area, backwards and forwards to the, to the national park. We have a resident leopard. We, we have hyena that we see most nights, particularly when we've got a barbecue on that comes sniffing around. And, and there is an edge to it, but it's also, it's great to be able to put yourself in a situation where you realize that with a little bit of common sense, we can live side by side with, with nature. It doesn't have to be one or the other. We don't have to clear fell forests and lock up animals in cages or put fences around parks and reserves. That with a bit of mutual respect, we can live together. And if I want to be incredibly deep and, and, and meaningful, one of the things that I think has left me disillusioned about my experience in the military is that, is that I and many other people have been wars based on ideology and beliefs rather than land and oil and tangible things that, that people might have fought over once in the past many years ago. And, and if you put yourself in a situation where you can live side by side with, in my case, something that wants to eat you and know that there is a harmonious way of doing that, then surely we, as humans we can all find a way to live side by side. Um, so yeah, I've had to grapple with some of those issues and that's why I find living in the bush can be very therapeutic. You know, I, I think a lot of the veterans who found employment in Africa uh, do so perhaps not so much because they're craving action, because the, the reality in Africa is while there are foreign military veterans involved in anti-poaching, they're not there on the front line. They're not firing guns. They're there in training and mentoring roles. But I do know that veterans uh, have been involved in in animal-assisted therapy programs in Africa, just as they are in Australia and the US, and that there is something inherently soothing and, and, and therapeutic about spending time closer to nature. 
So I think I benefit from that and hopefully my writing benefits from that as well too. So has it been difficult then in 2020 to not have your therapy because of course, global pandemic, your Africa travels have been put on hold as it were. It's been terrible. <laughs> yeah, the closest you got was what, Darwin? <laughs> you tried writing a 120,000 word set on the sweeping plains of Africa where you're stuck in the spare bedroom, a two bedroom flat on a six lane highway. It's very hard. Very difficult. The interesting thing was, is that you know, um, you know, again, I don't want to sound corny, but it's brought us together in different ways. You know, being separated from our loved ones and places we want to be, we've had to adapt, and I think in some ways we've had to communicate more. So the book that I've got coming out next year is very much about traditional African beliefs. Um, it's a crossover between, say, traditional healing and medicine and, and almost traditional belief systems along the lines of our kind of religions. Uh, and these belief systems play an integral part in people's day-to-day -day lives, even in the war on poaching, where poachers will invoke traditional healers to give them various talismans and medicines to protect them, make them bulletproof. And I wanted to write a book about that, without giving too much away. But because I'm not there, the best way I could research was to talk to people. So I was calling people, I was calling uh, anthropologists in Africa, and I called my the security guard at the state where I lived, who shared with me uh, quite intimate details of his personal beliefs and his belief systems. And we did that over Messenger, you know, and talking over Messenger. And I dare say I had a better more insightful, more meaningful conversation with him because I was in Australia and he was there, perhaps feeling some measure of separation or comfort than if I bailed him up in the street and tried to have a chat to him about his deeply personal religious and, and traditional beliefs. So I think, you know, you've got to look for a you've got to look for a positive, you've got to look for an upside as well too. And I think just finding different ways to bridge the gap between people and different ways to communicate during the pandemic has not been all bad, even from my point of view. But yes, I would have loved to have been sitting on my stoop looking over my felt and my leopard and my hyenas. <laughs> we certainly all became very proficient with Zoom this year. But another positive thing happened for you in 2020, the release of a rather significant autobiography you were involved in. We have Daniel Kieran VC's name here in big gold letters and down the bottom there with Tony Park. How was it working with one of our nation's most decorated soldiers? Um, I've got to be careful how I say this without sounding big-headed, but I can say this because it's not my story and I didn't think it up. This is the best story. It's real life. This is the best story I've probably ever written because it's true and it is just incredible. I mean, when we talk about resilience and overcoming adversity and, and bullying and family-based violence and people coming from poverty and underprivileged backgrounds and, and how to divert young people from crime and the problem of drugs and then the, the pros and cons of a service life, the highs and lows of it, making something of yourself, living your dream, then confronting the absolute tragedy of seeing one of your best friends killed in action and having a father who's a drug grower and a petty criminal. Among other things. If you squeeze all that into one book, it's going to be a pretty good story. I mean, Dan's life is incredible. And there was a review of that book in The Australian a little while ago, and the opening paragraph was, you know someone has led an interesting life if the paragraph in which they won, if the chapter in which they won the Victoria Cross is the least interesting part of the book. Um, that's probably an over-exaggeration and I hope we did justice to that chapter. But this is a, again, I don't want to, I don't want to sound big-headed and, and I don't want to lapse into cliches, but this is a very inspirational man. This is a man who has come from a background that few Australians, I mean that, very few Australians could have conceived of the upbringing that this guy had sleeping on a dirt floor under a tarp in rural Queensland for a large chunk of his young life with a father who was a, um, who was a criminal. There's no other way to put it. Um, and, and then, you know, finding his way uh, in the army and yet still managing and winning the Victoria Cross and still managing to not have changed fundamentally in terms of his... Uh, his values that were instilled in him through his grandfather, his, his self-effacement, his, his lack of posture, 
his true professionalism as a soldier and then experiencing problems of his own after the army, his total lack of support when he left the army and was unable to find a job, the total lack of value that the civilian workforce placed on veterans, and we're talking now 2010, not that long ago, because he didn't have his Victoria Cross by then. And the break he got was, I think, a manager who was a reservist in the mines as well? Yeah, yeah. So, and, 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 well, his first break was one of his mates from the army who was dating the daughter of a guy that ran a drilling company. That's right. And his first job, traveling around Western Australia, lugging bags of dirt from a core sample drilling machine was probably worse than anything he'd done in the army. That was his best option. That was his best option. He had to travel from Brisbane to Kalgoorlie to get that job. So he's a young man who has been uh, an experienced military NCO with 10 years experience under his belt at leading people, has all the attributes that any decent employer should be looking for. And yet as recent as 10 years ago, he had no support. And, and, and no interest from the private sector in what he'd done. Now, hopefully some of those things have changed since then. But this is a book that is chock full of lessons, of inspiration, uh, of highs and lows, even after the army and, and through his personal life. And, and how he's a guy with very little education has been able to put, him through, put himself through university. You can't make that up. If I wrote a novel like that, no one would believe it, Alex. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm in my own small way. I'm, I'm proud of the book, but I'm, I'm probably more proud as an Australian of what someone like Dan has done. For the military viewers, you know the other thing that I could I found really interesting in writing this story is that our other Victoria Cross winners who've all done such amazing things come from the Special Forces community. And we don't expect every Special Forces soldier to be a, a VC winner but they're certainly they've raised the bar as high as they possibly can. Now Dan as a soldier, as a corporal in Afghanistan, had a good deal of operational experience in Timor and in Iraq uh, and, and in, a, in a previous tour in Afghanistan. So he was already a very experienced soldier. But when you read this book, what Dan did was something that I think just about anybody who served in the ADF would, would hope to think that they would be able to act like he did when put in, in a situation where he repeatedly exposed himself to, to enemy fire in order to, to draw that fire away from his mate who was being treated as a casualty and to try and pinpoint fire. Whether or not we can or can't do that is, is very much up to the individual. But the training that Dan had is the same training that people like me got at, at recruit training in the School of Infantry and our junior NCO courses. He is probably more like one of, he's the everyman that I think probably just about everyone in the ADF could read that story and say, you know, that bloke, I've done what he's done. Uh, he's special because of what he did, but uh, he is a product of, a, of the system and he's a very good advertisement for the system at its best. Well, we've touched on today, life after service, transition, what has worked and what hasn't worked. And we've seen, obviously, you, Tony, international best-selling author of nearly 20 novels, more on the way, on big-picture non-fiction projects like this one. But when you reflect, I guess, on your story, on Dan's story and all the other veterans you know, you describe yourself as lucky, and I'm sure luck plays a part in all these things for those who've got the best stories. But I personally don't believe it always comes down to luck. Looking at yours and other stories, what do you think is the secret or at least a key ingredient to a successful transition? I, I think two things. I, I, I think to, to draw on the best of what you've learned in the, in the ADF, um, but to realise, I, th I think as I was saying before, that it's not all that you are. You're, too often we hear people saying, I get out and I miss the support network of my mates and, and, and the structure and the sense of belonging. I still belong to the Sydney University Regiment. I still belong to 177 Air Dispatch Squadron, which doesn't exist anymore. I still belong to the Australian Army Public Relations Service. I still belong to SOTG 64 from 2002, even though I'm not there and even not part of them. Those people are still there. And, and I think one of, if there's again, if there's a positive that's come out of some of the trying times we've been before is that through social media, we are able to reach out to each other, to our brothers and sisters. And so the secret is that 
that connection that we felt as servicemen and women, it doesn't go away. It's, it's still there and we have to remember that and, and we have to look after each other. Because I think if there's one other thing that I learned in the ADF that I will always take with me, it is that one of the, the probably the, the essence of, of service is that we do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We, we look after each other. We are prepared and hopefully able to put the person next to us ahead of ourselves when needs be. That lack of, of selfishness, that selflessness that says, you are important, I will look after you, because I know if the situation's reversed and I'm in trouble, you will look after me. That is my overriding thing that I've taken away from my service. Well, Tony, I think your future outlook is looking promising. 2021 is around the corner. You've got a secret nonfiction project in the pipeline. You've got your next novel you mentioned, and hopefully you'll be able to get yourself back to Africa. So I think you can re realize your dream again of straddling two continents while writing away. And 2021 might just be a bit better year for you. Thank you. And thanks for this fantastic forum and outlet for veterans and for shining a light on us and um, the good and the bad things that we go through. I think we can go get a drink to celebrate that. Great idea. <laughs> when the shots crack around you, you remember the high, but it wasn't excitement, it was just terrifying. The steel tore through clothing, mud walls, trees and flesh, as I emptied my mag towards nothing at best. And as I crawled forward and I looked through me sights, I turned and saw Rowdy give a wink and a smile. He shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt.